will start, as always, by taking a look at the Sunday newspapers and the front pages, starting with the Sunday Independent today. COVID-19 hotspots on travel red list is the headline. Hugh O'Connell, political correspondent with the story, a ban on visitors from countries with a high virus rate under the new proposal. That includes countries like Brazil, countries like the US, likely to put on a red list, uh, meaning no one can travel here, effectively a ban. It's not expected to include European countries, uh, the paper reports, the new proposals being drafted by the Department of Health. Uh, some of those disease hotspots effectively being placed on the red list and then we'll have the green list that is kind of an orange list anyway. So we'll, we'll be talking about that later on in the show, the kind of traffic light system that they have been bringing in some really interesting coverage in the Sunday Independent today as well in relation to John Hume, obviously the most critical paper of him um, at the time when he was involved in the peace process and his talks, of course, with Jerry Adams. It's some really interesting insights to that inside um, the paper. Moving then to the Sunday Times again, they go with a COVID story on the front page. Extra phases planned to slow the lockdown exit. Justine McCarthy with the lead story on the front page is saying that uh, after the 174 cases uh, confirmed yesterday and taking in the the various medical advice, the, the five stages that had been reduced to four but were kind of three now likely to be extended to a few more stages that may actually run into next year, which obviously will have an impact on some different businesses who may not be able to open when they want to open. We've seen the delay with the pubs twice already. An interesting story as well on um, the, the front page of the Sunday Times. Office sounds offered on demand. And this is for all the people who are at home, been working at home, bored out of their minds or, or trying to adjust to their new small study in the in the front bedroom a lot of people now uh, peace and quiet may not be all it's racked up to be uh, for them and lonely workers are having to uh, pipe in music of busy office sounds to keep themselves uh, distracted and make themselves feel somewhat normal that's the front page of the Sunday Times just um, news talk on in the background oh <laughs> I, I could take that in a number of ways and I'm going to take it nicely. <laughs> um, page two of the Sunday Times. Donoghue suggests coalition U-turn over increasing PRSI in the budgets. This is uh, Finance Minister Pascal Donoghue saying he's strongly hinted that he will not be increasing the PRSI in the budget as has been uh, committed to in the programme for government. Looking then at the Sunday Business Post front page is uh, dominated by uh, Paul Reid, the CEO of the HSE. And Paul Reid will be on the, the show just after 12 talking about the increase in the COVID cases, but also a various other things. He's done a very extensive interview with the Business Post today and the headline they've gone with is the HSE to require €1 billion Euro extra as lockdown tensions mount. There's obviously already been a €2 billion Euro extra allocated to the HSE this year to deal with COVID but that's not going to be sufficient to meet the costs of it through the cost of this year, uh, through the rest of this year rather. Some interesting bits as well when he's talking about Solange Care, Solange talking about reform of the HSE and this idea of regional boards, maybe not the best idea at the moment so we will get into all that with Paul Reid later in the show. The other uh, front page story from Michael Brennan uh, in the Business Post, McEntee backs plan to raise age limit for young offender scheme. So this is the, the scheme where young offenders up to the age uh, of 18 at the moment can be given guard of cautions instead of prison sentences and there is consideration being given to raise that up to the age of 24 uh, for certain offences. Uh, more coverage inside then of the COVID-19 pandemic. Some interesting stuff in the Business Post today actually on it. The union uh, SIP2 warning, meat plant work 
workers with COVID-19 are going back to work and that's alongside an article from Tomás Ryan quite interesting we need a new virus strategy he's saying suppression uh, is not good enough and we must aim for elimination that is uh, um, Tomás Ryan from the School of Biochemistry in Trinity College some interesting takes there we'll also put to Paul Reid looking then the Irishman on Sunday Uh, this is one of the stories that really has struck me very harrowing details carer's abuse of blind woman shocking video reveals soiled cloth was used to wash the face of a frail pensioner exclusive by Michael O'Farrell who says sickening footage shows the HSE funded home support worker using a face cloth face cloth to wipe herself after urinating and shortly after using the same cloth to clean the fragile woman's face some really uh, disturbing details in the front of the mail of Sunday uh, and the Irish Sunday mirror finally uh, tears tear comes the bride is the headline snap lockdown forces newlyweds to host a makeshift reception in the garden a tearful bride whose wedding reception was scrapped overnight had to make do with tea and sandwiches in the back garden yesterday and they won't be the only ones I'm sure disappointed now that the the lockdown restrictions have come into effect I am joined to talk a bit more in the detail of the Sunday papers uh, today by my my two panellists Sinead O'Carroll the editor of the journal.ie and Fergus Finley columnist with the Irish Examiner and a member of the HSE board because you're very welcome to studio Thanks for having Thanks us. Much, I was meant to have a championship match at three o'clock today in uh, Kildare, which is now not going ahead, obviously. You've nothing but time in your hands, so Sinead. Mm. No weddings, though. No weddings, no championship matches. Um, my husband has been laughing at me all weekend about how I'm kind of blinded <laughs> by my bias uh, <laughs> that I can't go back. I live in Dublin, but I'm from Kildare and play hurling in Kildare. And yeah, it's I think it's gutting on a national level, obviously, that we're here. But there's just all of those small mm. things that add up for people. Championship matches, communions, confirmations. One of my friend's little boys was going to his first cool camp um, and asked her to get Leo Varadkar on the phone, which is something we <laughs> might get into about who's the Taoiseach and little... Little Keen asked, can, Mummy, can you get Leo on the phone and ask, can I go to my football camp? Oh, well, we can try and get him on the phone. We'll get a producer there. I'm sure he would. He, he would she go said for she didn't have the heart to tell him that it was Hall now, not Leo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's one we will definitely be getting into to later on in the show. I suppose, obviously, as the Kildare native in it, we might start with a bit of the uh, the restrictions. What is your overall take on them? Is it a kind of a necessary evil, even though a lot of people that I've talked to in the, the Midlands, they feel they've done everything right and it's the clusters that have put them wrong? Yeah, it's very difficult. I think um, Neffet have been very even handed. So I think if Neffet are saying this needs to happen, I think you can see the logic in like we know exactly where these clusters are. We need to try and contain it. Um, I think when you get into and you've seen all the memes from Kildare, that's very difficult to lock down areas. And then you say, well, me then Dublin and and yeah. Carlo, all these areas in the border are still going about their business, which doesn't make sense in some ways. Um, I think the main thing, and Sarah McInerney gets to the crux of it in her uh, piece in the Sunday Times today, is I think a lot of people in Kildare, Leash uh, and Offaly would like to see more being done on what's actually happening like mm-hmm. direct provision centres and meat factories we know these are the clusters so what's being done to actually prevent these from continuing to happen because otherwise we're going to be in a perpetual state of lockdown it's also going to move from different counties we're not the only counties with meat factories and direct provision centres we know that congregated settings and um, how work practices are happen in these places 
make the virus really, really, really easy to, to spread there. But there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of action on changing that. We, we seem as a society to say, look, we can take, these are easier decisions to lock down all of these counties rather than tackle some of the systemic problems that are happening with low paid workers in, in bad conditions and congregated settings like direct provision. Why aren't we actually tackling that stuff? And, you know, um, the Justice Minister said during the week, it's not going to happen overnight, but we've had four months now. And nothing has changed. So what, what has been done over the last four months? Nothing. What's going to be done over the next four months? That's, I think, what people in Kildare Leishnafli want to know. Mm. I think um, it's a very intriguing question um, because, um, for starters, I'm very familiar with a meat plant, uh, very close to me, that hasn't had a single case, not a single case, uh, since the start of the pandemic. Um, and what that says to me, and this is maybe me being very simplistic, is that there is a responsibility on the management of very, very profitable businesses. And the meat industry is a hugely profitable industry uh, to put the right systems, management, guidance, education uh, protocols in place um, in, in the course of a pandemic like this. And if you do, you avoid cases. I, I think there is a kind of a tendency. Um, and, I, you know, I, here am I, kind of an old lefty statist saying, uh, there's a kind of a tendency to say, what is the state doing to uh, prevent all this? The state can't prevent COVID if people won't behave in pubs. The state can't behave, be, prevent COVID if people won't observe the appropriate protocols uh, and go about their daily lives with care and, and so on. I mean, I'm getting to the point where I'm in the vulnerable category when where coronavirus is concerned. Um, I don't want it. I don't want to get it. Um, I don't know anyone who wants to get it. And most of us that I know of um, are just taking care. I wouldn't be seen dead in a pub at the moment, if even if they were open. Um, and if I was going to work in a place where, you know, temperatures were low, which was a kind of a breeding ground for coronavirus, I'd want my boss to assure me that the masking, the perspex, the social distancing was all in place before I went next night or near it. Um, and, and, you know, particularly in places where, I mean, the numbers tell the tale, you know, the, the latest last night's numbers, an awful lot of them came from one county. That's not blaming anyone in particular, but like we have to take responsibility, some level of responsibility uh, uh, around around all this. You can't simply can't have a situation where if you have 100 cases in one place, <clears throat> 100 with an O rate of one, a hundred means a hundred more get infected or potentially get infected very quickly. If the O rate climbs, then two hundred more get infected very quickly. And once the two hundred are infected very quickly, a hundred cases uh, today becomes a thousand cases by the end of the week. We saw that at the start of this pandemic, <clears throat> and we know how to stop it. Like we've proved to ourselves that we know how to deal with the pandemic in Ireland. Uh, despite all the difficulties that we've had and when we're talking about a bit more about the HSE, perhaps we can talk about them. It's all about behaviour. It's all about management. It's all about, you know, doing the right things for each other. Uh, and they're very basic. You, you walk through my, the village that I live in in Dublin and still about two thirds of people aren't wearing masks. My local shop yesterday, um, I'd say 75% were wearing a mask, but others weren't. I was in Little this morning. Um, uh, before I came in here and about 80% of people were wearing a mask but some weren't. It's very simple. This, and, But I think the, the thing is, Fergus, is that we these cases are where personal responsibility isn't coming into play because it is the question of what the state can do. Like we've been told by Neffet that 
um, congregated settings are yes. the problem and direct provision settings your yes. shared bathrooms there is no uh, there is no ability from the people living in direct provision to to actually take personal responsibility and do the right things because there's no physical way they can so that is a question of what the state can do like at the moment they're saying well we'll test people every two weeks okay well then you're subject subjecting people to tests every two weeks and not actually going about trying to prevent them from so okay you've got the contact tracing and testing side of it done but you've you've actually make no, no moves to not, stop we, the congregated need, setting need, part of it like much we, more we yeah. need much more testing there's no doubt about that um i i mean i've been opposed to congregated settings for 30 years mm. um when it comes to you know elderly people and people with disabilities and uh, and and so on and there there's no doubt that they are high risk settings replacing them is enormously expensive, enormously expensive and can't happen overnight. The only immediate solution is um, much more ramped up testing. We've gone from a position in Ireland where we none, where we no capacity to do it, where we had to fight for, you know, reagents uh, and, and all the testing equipment that you have to a point where we can now begin to ramp up testing and we need to do that. We have to do that. Um, and, you know, you're not subjecting people to tests. I've had two coronavirus tests. It takes about eight seconds to do the test. One second of that is uncomfortable, you gag. Um, and that's it. That's all there is to it. There's no subjecting involved. Um, uh, you know, I, and if we had the resources, I'd love to see permanent testing in places that where there is where there is greater risk but it's but it's, this it's overnight but, but this overnight thing it's been four months we like Neffet have been mm. saying for four months direct provision centers are high high risk yeah. absolutely nothing has been done to to do anything that we're not asking overnight we're saying four months and we're saying this this virus is going to be with us for at least unvaccinated for at least the next year and a half. So you're not talking about overnight. You're talking about taking some steps. And I and I do argue that it is subjecting people to a test every two weeks. Um, I've had a test as well. It's uncomfortable. It might only be a second, but you're asking people to do something differently than you're asking the other the other set of well, people to do well, in a country. Maybe, like, maybe I'm not being asked to maybe, do a test not. every two weeks, whereas people in congregated settings are. So again, yeah, it goes back to you're taking the ability from them to. to to have personal responsibility because they're not they're not physically no, I, able to follow I the rules that, that we're all being asked I to follow. I agree with that. Congregated settings are really difficult. But in a sense, it's a bit like the nursing homes. When I think what we all know about nursing homes is that nursing homes are full of people who are intensely vulnerable uh, to the coronavirus. And if it takes hold in a nursing home, it does awful, dreadful pain and damage. And the only way to prevent that is to stop it at the gate, stop it coming in. The same thing is true uh, with meat plants and low paid workers. The only way to prevent it is to stop it at the factory gate to ensure that it doesn't leave the meat plant and go to the direct provision centre or the crowded lodging rooms uh, or wherever it, it, it is. I mean, I've worked in direct provision as well um, uh, when I was in Bernardo's and they're not places where you'd want families to be mm-hmm. at all. Um, and even yeah. simple things like people who live in direct vision can't get a driving license in Ireland. Something that is such a simple change yeah, yeah. Um, that has been lobbied by many TDs um, over the last few years. It hasn't happened yet. And then you get a situation where people are driving from direct vision centres to work. There's only maybe one person who can actually drive a car. So there's four or five people in cars, which is, again, not ideal. So there are simple things that could have been done in the last four months, and, 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 which, and would, which would and help. And that should be done. Yeah. And there's no doubt about that. And and. I mean, one of the intriguing things uh, that we're now discovering is indirect provision, you're not supposed to be working. 
you're supposed to be in direct provision. You know, oh, no, you can work now. Um, and and uh, the extraordinary numbers of people who are going from direct provision centres to meat plants. Um, that that changed a couple a of years ago. You, I, there, I know, there, there I know, is a right to I work. know it changed, but but it's like it's almost like it's the recruitment pool for highly profitable meat plants. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something that has to be looked at as well. And there is a, there is a huge layer across over there that is going to have to be dealt with. Is there any other, the, the COVID coverage, and there is quite a lot of it, quite a lot of different angles that stood out to either of you today? Well, I know. I mean, I think like your heart goes out to people in uh, the counties that are affected and, and you hope that, you know, there aren't going to be more. Um, I, 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 I think... Um, I, I mean, I sound like a, I sound like a representative of Neffet and I'm not by any manner <laughs> of means. But I think p- public health advice from the very beginning has been consistent and constant. And 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 it has helped us to get to the point where, you know, if we're looking at a resurgence now, the important thing is it's a resurgence. These, this is happening in places where we had beaten the bloody thing. Uh, and that's the real tragedy, I think. Um, I, I totally, completely understand how people just are utterly fed up with it. Um, uh, you know, the idea that you can't play a camogie match or you can't play a football match or, you know, my grandkids uh, can't go to soccer camp and all that, all that. It's really, really, really frustrating. But it's not as bad as an elderly relative dying. Um, Sinead, with your editor's hat on, I'm going to turn to you first and the editorial in the Sunday uh, Independent today because a huge amount of coverage about John Hume. Obviously, Sunday Independent and John Hume goes, but there's a lot of blood under the water there, if you like. Um, what did you make of it? I think quite an honest assessment in the editorial of what the coverage is like at the time. Yeah, I think journalists love talking about journalism with a capital J and this is the, the perfect opportunity to do it. The, the Sunday Independent is um, a fascinating uh, read today. I was alive in 1992 but I was seven so I don't remember any of this uh, from I don't no have idea any how sad that makes con- me to contemporary I, I won't tell you my age then <laughs> I, I have no contemporaneous <laughs> memories of, of it but just to to read Liam Collins piece of of how um, remembering how the, how the newsroom operated in 1992 in 1993 how and I'm, I'm struck by a few weeks ago we were talking about Eamon Dunphy's coverage of Jack Charlton and being this dissenting voice about Jack Charlton mm. and it was the same obviously much more serious than whether you were in for, for the long ball but <laughs> much more serious that he was this dissenting voice um, on John Hume and the Adams talks and how Alan English the, the current editor of the Sunday Independent has dealt with it is it's it's a master in in editorial decision making i think this week to to give space to people not just to defend um what they were doing in 92 and 93 but to just to talk to, to people like me and you Sean who don't remember it and to give their um view of why they were writing these things at the time so Ailish O'Hanlon's piece is really fascinating she was one of these dissenting voices you know she she tells us that she lost friends and family members because they never talked to her again because of the things she was writing and i think there's probably a line and Alan English talks about this in his editorial i think some of the the columns and questions it's fair that there was questions and there was scrutiny over some of it and then some of them went over went far beyond what was what was acceptable and things like not giving a right of reply to the SDLP when they asked for it so i think there there's a lot parsed out in across the seven pages and in the editorial of what was done correctly what was you know too too far over the line and what was just 
done the wrong thing that was done. But in the end, John Hume was was proved correct. Yeah. And I think it is the right thing that there was, like from a journalism point of view, and Colin Murphy writes about this in the Sunday Business Post today as well, from a journalism point of view, it would have been wrong that there was no questions asked of what was happening with human Adams at the time. But it's the manner of the questions, I think, that that people had an, an, an issue with in the Sunday Independent, which is probably fair criticism. But again, fair criticism is allowed of, of journalism. There's no point in everyone being on the same page and no questions being asked either side of it. Yeah, his um, editorial, Alan English's editorial in the Sunday does sum it up. The headline is a letter from the editor, Hume vindicated by the hand of history. And he says that such analysis has not aged well, talking about the coverage in the Sindo at the time, to put it mildly. But the same could be said of countless newspaper articles written in the moment and at a time of uncertainty. And let us not forget, this was a time when innocent people were still being murdered and maimed by the terrorist organisations like the IRA. Journalism might be the first rough draft of history but reporters and columnists writing in the moment are not historians and the newspaper that got everything right has yet to come off a printing press so somewhat defending it while also acknowledging that for example when Mark Durkin looked for a right of reply to a Dunphy column um, saying that to refuse a, a platform to a senior SDLP figure who took serious issue with what was being written was an indefensible decision. Um, Fergus you lived through it you were, were quite close to it what do you make of the coverage today and I suppose the eye of history looking at how well, it happened yeah, at the time I, 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 when Sinead said she's no contemporaneous memory of it, I, 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 I get, I, I understand why, you know, this might seem weird to younger people in some ways. Um, I, I, incidentally, I also looked for a right of reply to a, a Dumphy column, and um, Dumphy single-handedly prevented it appearing nice. in the Indo, and it did subsequently appear in the Examiner. Um, I was there, right? And Alicia Hanlon talks about context in her piece and people criticise her and it's fair to criticise her, but you must remember the context. Well, anyone who lived through 1993, um, I, I think still anyone who was involved in the stuff that was going on in 93 still carries some of those scars. Um, 1993 was a year which ended with the Downing Street Declaration. Uh, which was the first real breakthrough towards peace. It was the first step uh, towards uh, an IRA ceasefire. Uh, and the IRA ceasefire followed pretty quickly thereafter. Um, and that Downing Street Declaration was a hard fought, hard negotiated, uh, really tough bit of work, huge bit of work. There were four or five public servants. I was one of them uh, who traveled backwards and forwards to London and others came from London to here every week. Uh, to try and talk about phrases and nuances and uh, so on. And it was a really, really tough bit. Behind that, behind that drafting bit of work was John Hume, who on the one hand was saying to us, you know, this is the kind of language that might work and this is the kind of language that mightn't. And on the other hand was saying to the provost, you're going to have to change your outlook. Mm. You're going to have to... Uh, change your expectations and your demand. And he, he, he invented language for them that they were able to live with. Uh, phrases like self-determination on the basis of consent and, and those, those kind of things, which didn't exist in the language. Mm. Absolutely didn't exist in the language. Now, the, the key insight that Hume and a couple of others had at the time was we had spent 10 or 15 years trying to strengthen the centre of politics in Northern Ireland. That's what Sunningdale was about. It was what the New Ireland Forum was about and so on, in the hope that republicanism, hard-edged, violent republicanism, would wither on the vine. And it didn't. It just got worse and worse. Um, and and then an insight occurred, uh, and it was Hume's insight in large measure, though not exclusively, 
that if you could make the provost part of the solution, it might be different. And that meant bringing them in from the cold in some fashion. That was immediately seized on as appeasement, as betrayal, uh, as Munich, uh, as Chamberlain talking to Hitler, etc., etc. And the Indo didn't ask questions, by the way. They didn't comment critically. They heaped abuse on the process. And nearly everything that was written was abusive. Uh, not critical. Uh, was there uh, again? I, I don't. I remember the times similar to Sinead. Um, like, was there a public mood there? Because quite often, when this this kind of things are printed, there was public anxiety. There was, was there was awareness. There was a awareness. Albert Reynolds, uh, um, John Major. There was a, there were summit meetings. There was dialogue. There were bits and pieces of text beginning to emerge. So there was a lot of awareness that progress was being made possible. But at the same time. And 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 this was what made it so really difficult. There were also atrocities. Um, everyone now, I think, remembers uh, the, the the video footage of John Hume breaking down in tears in a graveyard. Um, that happened at the end of a week. The start of that week, a man called Thomas Begley blew up a fish shop uh, and himself, a fish and chip shop in Belfast. In the middle of that week, uh, Jerry Adams carried Thomas Begley's coffin to the graveside. There were 11 other victims, but his was the one that uh, that whose coffin was carried. At the end of that week, men walked into a pub in a place called Grey Steel in the heart of John Hume's constituency and murdered seven more people, shouting trick or treat as they sprayed them with bullets. And it was at that f- the funeral of one of those victims that Hume broke down when he was confronted by uh, a woman who, whose father had been killed uh, and he was expecting to be treated with dog's abuse and he was braced for it. And she put her arms around him and said, we're praying that you won't stop, Mr. Hume, that you'll keep going. So at the lowest of low points, there was awareness that there was a process underway. Nobody fully understood the process. Uh, It was called Hume Adams. And Hume Adams was a kind of shorthand um, for something much more complicated. There was never, for example, a Hume Adams document, although Mm. it was widely reported that there was a Hume Adams document. There was a difficult tentative process, which was basically John Hume taking his courage in his hands and saying, come in from the cold, lay down your arms. Let's solve this conflict some other way. Let's find new ways of talking about it and expressing our our shared aspirations, because Hume was a nationalist as well um, uh, and so on. And to uh, and that was going on in a way that most people who were commenting on it understood, maybe were a bit doubtful about, hesitant about, critical about, but only one newspaper was really abusive about it um, and and uh, and decided very clearly uh, to allow that abuse to continue. And anyone who supported Hume or worked alongside Hume, my own boss at the time was Dick Spring, uh, who worked 24-7 during that period um, to try and, uh, you know, and, and who probably rescued uh, the entire process after the Shankill ma- massacre with this a famous speech um, uh, and which put the process back on track. Um, Hume wrote an article after, in the aftermath of that speech saying that Spring was um, a disgrace to his country, had betrayed his country uh, in making that speech and then taking that approach and was also, and you'll have to pardon the expression, a complete bollocks. Mm. So he introduced a form of language and abuse that readers of the Sunday Indo certainly weren't used to. Mm. Um, and and you, you can't really describe that as critical commentary, I think. It was just 
personal abuse well, and it got more and more vulgar well, with that in mind and what you just said there what then do you make of the pieces today by Alan English and by Liam Collins in particular I think it's I think they're, they're powerful pieces I think they're long overdue um, I, I think they um, uh, you know John Hume has been in decline for a good many years most of the obituaries ab- about him were written four or five years ago because he wasn't expected to live and they've been updated since and, and so on so this piece could have been written uh, a long time ago. I don't believe Angus Fanning could ever write it. I don't believe Anne Harris could ever write it or Owen Harris could ever write it. Uh, um, and uh, so it took a new man, I suppose, to, uh, to, to to write it. And and I hope it does represent um, a kind of a watershed where where the Indo and will, will reserve to itself, as it should, the right to be as ferociously critical as it needs to be about any aspect of public policy but we'll stop short of uh, hurling abuse at, uh, at, at people. Mm. Uh, Sinead, is there, and I'm thinking of a wider context of journalism with this, because Fergus just talked about words that were introduced that weren't really in the lexicon. Mm. Unfortunately, now we have social media and a lot more uncouth words are, are, are in that. Uh, is, is there That's a m- certain... It's mild nowadays. Well, <laughs> um, is there a certain awareness that journalism, that editors like yourself need to have over how you are framing something because it will impact, you know, different processes. Obviously, we're not doing anything like now, like the peace process, but for how that needs to be approached while being critical at the same time. Yeah, and I think there's really good examples in the last two years of that. Like, um, if you take the wearing of the green jersey approach to Brexit, um, you know, there, there, you have to be very conscious of, we can't just... Um, continue to be a, a microphone for government policy or for Ireland strategy. You have to um, figure out a way of doing it um, and allowing dissenting voices without doing it for the sake of it or for the sake of clicks or for the sake of um, controversy, mm. like for, for no reason. Um, there's a line there, I think, with, with Neffet and with COVID, that there's another example of it, that you don't want to um, just be uh, a microphone for, you know, you don't want to go to press conferences and just allow Leo Vracker or Micheál Martin just do their thing and then leave. You have to, you know, probe and question it. And there was a great example of it on Friday when we're saying, OK, this you're taking this approach to lockdown. Why didn't you take another approach to it. Um, Stephen Donnelly didn't want to answer questions on it, but, you know, reporters kept pushing him and pushing him on, on doing it. So that that critical questioning has to happen. I think when you get columnists and maybe polemicists who will then take it further, that's a different thing. And that's much, I think, can that the volume of that now can be much greater, although they last for a shorter amount of time because of social media, but the the volume of those things can can be a lot louder. Um, like if you take the examples of the the Sunday Independent, they were talking about how people, um, spin doctors, Liam Collins calls them, were lining up at, at O'Connell Street at nine p.m. to get the paper so that they knew what was going to be the the talking point the next day. So like you don't need to line up anymore. You're on social media. Um, He's wrong about that, by the way. We we used to go down to Abbey Street to the back door of the. <laughs> <laughs> Correction, and there was a, there's a, a there was a couple of other bits that I thought um, about how myths um, kind of uh, develop over the years. That the cartoon which P 
people had mm. been saying had John blood on John Hume's hand. When you see the cartoon, there it's not blood. And well, there's nothing a, dripping. One one of his hands is much darker than the other, and uh, and that's how that that mistake was made at the time. Yeah, and uh, they spoke to the um, cartoonist uh, for this piece today, and she said that it didn't intend to show any kind of blood, and that was not her intention. And um, but that became such a myth that John Hume said he didn't see the cartoon, but he heard about it that the Sunday Independent had a cartoon. So it's it's funny that misinformation um, was happening ba- back then as well in the same way that we talk about it now. Um, yeah, I think there is a responsibility to, to, to get that balance right. I think some editors don't look at it in the same way. They look at controversy creating an, a different type of uh, reaction is a good thing. I mm. think we see more of that in the US and the UK than we do in Ireland, thankfully. Mm. Uh, yeah, and long may that last. <laughs> but but uh, how long? I'm not quite sure. Um, one page I loved in the Sunday Independent again today, and this question's been asked over and over: Who is the real Taoiseach? Uh, big uh, spread from Hugh O'Connell, and this Sinead, this is something that is going to dog the government for the next two years because as much as Michal Martin is the Taoiseach right now, Leo Varadkar has just inserted himself enough into the news, done little doorsteps here and there, made little announcements, and is always looming over the shoulder. Um, it's the perfect role for Leo, isn't it? It's like he's being Enda's th- the thorn in Enda's side again. <laughs> and how good was he at that? And so he gets to do it now and he doesn't even have to worry about party allegiance. Um, I was thinking as I was walking here this morning, Micheál Martin wanted to go first, but actually going second is the better job. I agree. Because you have totally the agree. rising economy, in theory, um, but also you, you don't have someone dying you for two years. Yeah, and you're 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 a lame duck, really. Like that, that's the, like you're a lame duck once you're not. Once you have an end date to a job, and that's always that's mm. a truism in politics. Yeah, the, so the Taoiseach who leads you into an election uh, is the Taoiseach. Um, mm. And uh, I, I mean, I wrote about this the day the government was formed. I predicted this would happen. Um, if you'll pardon me saying so, uh, mm. it it's um, it's inevitable that that phrase, the real Taoiseach, is going to swan around the place. It's never happened in Irish politics before, never, ever, ever, that somebody was Taoiseach and then became Tánaiste with the certainty of being Taoiseach again. Mm. Every previous Taoiseach has served out his term on the backbenches and then gone. Um, every every single Taoiseach we've ever had. Um, and there's a good reason for that, because you have to let your successor step out from under your shadow. You can't have your successor in the shadow. Uh, and that that's a fundamental strategic error that Michal Martin I think made on this occasion he should have let Leo carry on as Taoiseach um, in the certainty that he would take over two and a half years before an election and then it would be his and Leo would be over do you know what I mean mm-hmm. like there wouldn't there would be no certainty at all that Leo would ever um, uh, you know come back into high office at that stage whereas now he's living with the absolute certainty that no matter what he does um Unless he does something Trump-like, <laughs> um, uh, um, he's he's going to be Taoiseach again, and um, uh, and and he also has he appears to have a kind of a mischievous instinct anyway that that kind of you know the business of putting some of the quotes in his speeches and so mm. on. He he seems to like that kind of uh, quirky, humorous way of going about things, which must drive Michal Martin mad. I'd say. His teeth must grind every time he hears the phrase "the real Taoiseach." Um, uh, at, at this stage, it must, it must be very. But 
they have to suck it up. They have to get through it. They do. Uh, what do you make? Cause I've seen Micheál Martin quoted recently that he wants to be- then become tarnished. Like he, he still thinks he will be the leader of Fianna Fáil when this two-year stint is over and there isn't going to be a knife with Jim O'Callaghan or Barry Cowan or someone else's name on it in his back at that stage. Is that it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be the Fianna Fáil way to put a knife in his back while he's in government. That wouldn't be the Fianna Fáil way. Do you not think after uh, all the from, animosity apart, apart he's from the fact that Albert did it to Charlie and Charlie did it to Jack. <laughs> apart from those few little uh, contradictions yeah. in the past. Um, Blips. Uh, I, 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 um, I, I mean, that's, that's Michal's problem. You know, he's not the, the, he's not the master of his own destiny in that respect. Um, and uh, whereas Leo is. He is the master of his own destiny. Yeah, and the predictions are hard, Sean. Like if you think back to 2016, and we were thinking, how long is this minority government mm. going to last? I don't think. I think most people's predictions on the kind of extreme side were two and a half years, and look how long we got out of it. Um, and the, Hugh O'Connell in his piece today kind of jokes. Uh, there was a, a moment where Shane Ross, uh, Finn Finn McGrath, and John Halligan were taking a picture outside Leinster House, and someone f- f- shouted at them all for give and come back. There was a bit of stability <laughs> with you guys around, you know. So predictions well, I, are I very hard. And like Gareth Fitzgerald, I worked for a government that led by Gareth Fitzgerald from eighty three to eighty seven, and I think every single day of that four years, Charlie Hawhey said. This is an inherently stable, unstable coalition which cannot last another week. Every single day of that four years, he predicted its imminent collapse. So no government is ever as stable as it looks on the outside, nor as unstable either. Yeah. But is this particularly with the, the tripartite nature of it and the, so many cooks to, to, to spoil it? There seems to be so many slip ups that this government could go through more than your average government. Yeah, and they have a, a, a very strong opposition. I think probably part of the reason that the minority government did last as long is because it was being propped up and so that does weaken the opposition in this instance that's not going to happen there will be a much stronger opposition with with Sinn Féin Um, but we're also in the middle of a pandemic and I think probably some of the real Taoiseach stuff does come from changing uh, government in the middle of this was very very difficult Um, changing health minister has proven to be extremely difficult messaging is very hard to keep um, consistent like you know, we have Neffet keeping it consistent, but from a, a politician standpoint, people are seeing different people appear on their television. Statements are being given by different people. I think Simon Harris is finding it very hard to not be Minister for Health mm. if you look at his his Twitter um, and, and social media at the moment. So I'm, I'm actually struggling to remember what he's Minister of now. Higher, Higher education. education. Higher education. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny, isn't it? Because, like, you know, he was, he was every news bulletin Twenty four seven a couple of months ago, and hadn't and now and I'm a nerd, you know, and I found it difficult to kind of place what he's doing. Mm. Yeah, but he will be. It uh, will be back with a vengeance if there's one thing Simon Harris can do. To be fair to him, it is uh, public um, pronouncements. Uh, Fergus, there's a lot of coverage of the health service. We touched on some of it earlier. Um, big interview with Paul Reid today. He is on with us uh, in about twelve minutes' time after twelve o'clock. He will be doing an extensive interview. You are a member, member of the HSE board, obviously. What did you make of what he had to say? Not so much on the COVID stuff, but there's a lot in there uh, with regard to the HSE regional boards, with regard to mandatory vaccinations. What you make of the interview he's given already today? Well, I, I, first of all, I'm a bit constrained, OK? Um, mm. I, I, I'm a member of the board of the HSE. I can't really talk about what happens at HSE board meetings. I will say that um, our CEO is somebody that we have huge respect for. Um, and I think it's reciprocated. He's, he's, he's worked with us and we with him on the basis of, you know, mutual respect. 
I'm not 100% clear sometimes who's the boss and who isn't. Um, the board is meant to be the boss and, and uh, you know, he's, he's somebody who has uh, a very strong vision and a very strong feel for the right thing to do and so on. He has been galvanising. Um, I, I don't think we'd have got through the crisis that we've been through without somebody of his calibre and clear-headedness and calm energy. Um, uh, so so that's my flattery done, OK? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I, there's going to have to be a lot of talking about the future, a huge amount of talking at, at every level. Um, whatever, whatever about regional authorities, the principles of Slanta Care, the core principles of Slanta Care are the key to the future. The core principles of Slanta Care is much more health services delivered locally uh, and within the community, much more. Get as far away from hospitals as we can and much more accountability at local level. And in whatever way you organise that, if we can't, if we get back to uh, the position where, you know, a year ago, the HSE would have been routinely described as a huge, unaccountable monster, a behemoth employing 150,000 people and accountable to nobody for nothing. Um, we, we're not going back there. We're absolutely not going back there. I don't think Paul Reid wants us to go back there. Um, and I don't think anybody in the HSE wants to go back there. We've, like, the most remarkable thing that has happened in some ways is that the HSE has won the confidence of the people through this crisis. I wouldn't have necessarily predicted that at the start because Ireland was is the least well-equipped country in Europe to deal with the pandemic. But the simple reason that I mentioned uh, when we were off air uh, our bed capacity, our hospital bed capacity is 97% on a good day. That means that's why we're always uh, in crisis all winter long. The typical, the average in the OECD is 85% and some of the more developed health systems are lower than that. Yeah, people remember in the UK a couple of years ago, emergency, states of emergency were called because yeah, of capacity yeah. in the and health system. Capacity, and, and their, their capacity, capacity is better than ours. And it their was, capacity it was, is better than yeah, ours. The, the capacity so we were, at emergency level we were was going lower to be overrun. than ours. There was no question that Ireland was going to be overrun and couldn't cope. Didn't have the ventilators, didn't have the ICU, didn't have the beds. And somehow, Paul Reid and his team sorted all that. Mm. Um Sure, mistakes were made. I'm absolutely certain mistakes were made in the end, but we weren't overrun and we owe him uh, and the HSE a huge debt. But we can't go back to being the big yoke we were before. Yeah, and we it'll, be a, it'll be a telling uh, sign to see how they manage waning lists over the next six yeah, months. Yeah. Couldn't be um, really it's part of, part of the interview with Daniel Murray in the Business Post today um, that they will be using private hospitals to, to try and uh, manage them. So it will be to see if Slauncher Care, the, the the kind of thinking behind Solange Care and dismantling that two-tier system, whether that can start, going back to what we were talking about earlier about things not happening overnight, but making some movements. Um, and if I was a dictator, it. and I don't want to be a dictator, except now and again, um, I would make it compulsory for everyone in Ireland to have the flu vaccine before the winter starts. It, I, I cannot understand why people think it is responsible not to have the flu vaccine. Um, if If we have a major outbreak of flu this year, we will be overrun. Mm. Mm. And, and if, if, we, if we don't do it this year, then it will never be done, um, especially with healthcare workers. The take up, um, and I know the minute you mention healthcare workers and flu vaccine, um, there's always, there'll be a huge stream of criticism about this, but the take up amongst healthcare workers is about 40%. No, it's, for, a, bit, it's a little bit higher than that and, and it has been growing, but it's not high enough, not nearly not, high not enough. Not nearly high enough. So there is I mean, there are circumstances it, in which the flu vaccine is contraindicated medically, you know, um, but apart from those circumstances, it shouldn't be tolerated. I'm, I would be all for shaming 
people who haven't got the vaccine. Well, that's what happens in some mad yokes that go around the place saying, don't give your child a vaccine. I'd have them if I was a dictator, I'd deal with them too. In some hospitals in America, what they do is it's not mandatory for the healthcare workers to have the vaccine. But if you don't have it, you have to wear a certain type of mask. <laughs> um, so really, there is, it's a little bit of that shaming and also making your job a little bit harder because you have to wear um, a, a certain you type be, of mask. You shouldn't be allowed to be in the presence of a patient if you haven't had the flu vaccine, in my view. OK, well, when the coup of Fergus Finlay is successful, remember you heard it here first on News Talks on the record. That is all the time we have uh, for the I moment. I News Talk, by the way, then. Well, <laughs> I, I, I bow down to our new overlords, frankly, <laughs> in, in utter deference. Um, thank you to Fergus Finlay, columnist with the Irish Examiner and a member of the HC Board and Sinead O'Carroll, editor of the Journal.ie for joining us with the Sunday Papers.